This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by Hugo Rifkind, Alice Thompson and David Aronovich. Teenagers and young people have never been so close to their parents in outlook, interests and core morality. Yet, at the same time, they must look forward to a future in which they will lack many of the opportunities and privileges that an earlier generation enjoyed. Why aren't they more angry and rebellious? And, if the rebellion ever comes, how will it look? The Cinderella Law sounds like a therapy-driven Winger's Charter. Step-parents could now not only be stigmatised but criminalised for not hugging their stepchildren. Smaller presents and fewer treats could be evidence for the prosecution. But actually, this is a desperately needed protection for the most vulnerable arriving at schools, unable to talk and still in nappies, ignored from birth. Nigel Farage lays claim to be heir to Thatcher. His remarks about Putin show he is no such thing. He represents something altogether much less idealistic and much more cynical. Well, those are our topics for today. And we're going to start, uh, Hugo, with your topic. And in Tuesday's edition of The Times, I think reflecting on the fact that gay marriage had arrived, we perhaps have reached a point where a lot of the causes that energised young generations in the past may no longer be uh, evident. And, you know, we have grey-haired men in New York being the champions of environmentalism and you begin your column by talking about 34-year-olds in Shoreditch dressing like they're a lot younger. And I think your point is that um, what is there left to rebel against now? Pretty much. I mean, I chose to look at the, you know, the equal marriage coming into law, uh, not from the sort of point of view of sort of morality and sort of natural rights and wrongs, as, as most people do, but as a uh, as basically a, a sort of a symbolic moment when a different generation took charge of our politics, because uh, you know, I mean, David Cameron, Nick Clegg, basically most people in politics, they're of a sort of they're the sort of fifty-ish mark. They've grown up with the um, with the, the the attitudes of the permissive society embedded in their culture, you know, mm. t- taken from their from their music, from their films, from their conversation. These are these are presumptions. Now they're in charge of the world. This is how this is how the, the world, at least socially, is going to look. And it struck me that. Um, Whereas they may have been rebelling against their parents' generation in thinking things about, I don't know, about race, about sex, about gender that their parents would have found abhorrent, a younger generation, in as much as I can make out, a teenage generation, doesn't really disagree with us about any of these things. And I wondered, um, 
firstly, what they've got left to, re- to rebel against, and secondly, why they agree with us so much when we've messed up their world so badly. <laughs> uh, David Aronovitz, do you buy Hugo's analysis? Um, yes, uh, to, 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 to a large extent. I mean, I actually have a slight advantage and a disadvantage with relation to Hugo. The disadvantage is that I was young less recently than Hugo <laughs> was. <laughs> the advantage I have is that I have uh, daily um, contact with real teenagers, yeah. and yours are yet to become teenagers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And the point that you make is well made. It seems to me that um, what's changed dramatically is the decline of deference. Now, when we were rebelling, one of the things that you tended to rebel against was a kind of uh, an assumption of automatic authority. So, for instance, there was still a Lord Chamberlain censoring the theatre. There was still, you know, TV still ended at 11. There were people, endless number of people who would tell you what to do and what you should be doing with regard only to the fact that they were authority figures who had the power to do it. Now, we just don't deal with our own children by that in that way anymore. I mean, almost any parent worth their salt knows that because I say so is actually a failure of argument and not a victory and yeah. so on. And our children tend to know this too. So I think that has changed significantly. We don't, that big, that big substantial change has put us in a sense on the same side. But it also means in a way that it makes us all either completely responsible or not responsible at all for whatever happens in the world yeah. uh, because it's not the fault of some great authority. Uh, either we say it's because other people do it all to us or we say actually we are intimately involved ourselves in the business of government etc. On decisions are taken we act as the limits within which things can happen and I think there's probably a fair bit of that. So who are the young people going to rebel against? Well I mean I... So sorry, Alice. I was going to say, I think it's more insidious than that because what I find difficult is that with parents, we are so nice to our children and we are all best friends with our children. And, you know, there is a sense that you, you are forced economically to go and live with your parents after university or after school. But quite a lot of children want to live with their parents and they do things with their parents and they go to, you know, they go to events with their parents. You know, they're all going to rock concerts and things together, which mm. never happened in our generation. Mm. But on the other hand... Our generation have just left them with nothing, which is much worse in the end because we've taken it all and done it all and, you know, we've got better jobs, we've had better advantages. And in a way, that's far worse. So on a personal level, we've been incredibly kind and nice and solicitous and, you know, wanting to do everything for them, look after them. But on the other hand, we've actually left them with a world that's going to be much tougher. Because that's where you really end your column, isn't it, Hugo? Um, you talk about the house prices situation and the environmental mess and the, the fiscal deficit stretching into the far distance. There are plenty of things, actually, that young people could be very angry about if they chose to be. Well, absolutely. I mean, I'm sort of, uh, I sort of think my perspective on this, I'm, I'm slightly intergenerational in this respect. I'm fortunate enough to have sort of caught a lot of the trappings of a, slight, of a slightly older... How, slightly how old are you, Hugo? I'm, I'm 37. 37. Uh, but, um, but which means I just managed to buy a house in time. It means I, you know, just, just got a job before the, before the recession happens, which means I just remember a world before the internet, all these sorts of things. But I, I slightly wonder if, if we've, um, we've just kind of pulled a fast one on them. We've said there's this great, wonderful world and we're all equal and we all, work to, we all work together and we're all friends and we all get on and we all have the same interests. But our life is great and yours is going to be rubbish. And, um, and I, I don't know, it feels like a, a bit of a cheat. I mean, almost like a bit of a cheat in the way that my own generation sometimes rages against the baby boomer generation for no particular reason because our lives are pretty nice too. Mm. But in that same sort of way where you, you talk, the t- you know, we've talked the talk of everything being all fair and equal and actually just sort of gobbled But do we look up. at it as a sort of slightly, from a sort of statistical point of view, we look at the benefits and the house prices that the older generation enjoy, but actually we ignore the fact that most older people 
do their very best to share their wealth and their with their children they're going to help them buy a house if they possibly can that they pass on savings to be inheritance it's actually a, a relation relationally the the, the equity well, across the generations is nowhere near as bad as it but then might you are look tied to your parents value. i mean that's yeah. what i find i look at say the sort of 20 30 year olds and i'm amazed how tied down to their parents they are they really never grow up in the way that we had to grow up so they're at home much longer and they're needing more help and i'm not sure in the end whether that's fantastically good for them I mean, perhaps I, it perhaps it creates a more family centered society though, mm-hmm. rather than a, a less individualist society well, yeah, I mean, in a, if if in, you have well off parents of course this exactly, is all predicated yeah, exactly. on yeah well in a funny way that's the, that, that's interesting. So what you begin to get is a recreation of extended families, yeah. except they're kind of la- laterally rather than vertically uh, yeah. uh, extended. Everybody kind of stays together. I have a kind of... I mean, I know what the statistics show and so on. But on the other hand, I can't help reflecting that when I look at my own kids and so on, they have done and been and experienced so much more than I could conceivably have afforded to do by uh, at their age and sure. beyond. It's very difficult for me to actually to feel guilty about and I can feel guilty in kind of in abstract that I haven't saved the planet, you know, though been writing. It's, it's not all your fault, David. In a way, it's easier for me to feel guilty because I expect I suspect I managed to experience much the same as your kids will have experienced. experienced. I had the same opportunities and had vast amounts of, you know, affordable travel as a student, all this kind of thing. Vast freedoms won by your generation. And I'm so very grateful <laughs> for the sacrifices <laughs> my elders made. But at the same time, I enjoyed enjoyed the trappings of your generation too. But also it's financial issues so that if you've got rich parents you are then going to be richer and better off. Yeah, that's the problem. That, is and that's, that's going to be so stark in 20 years It's going to be far more so stark. stark. And also I think you'll find that if you have children, you know, particularly with jobs now, if one of them gets a very, very good job in the mm. city and the others don't, the differentiation between children even in one family is going to be huge which will be very difficult. So we're, many of the problems are about assortive mating really now. It's different, <laughs> yes. it's different classes emerging. It's not the young versus the old. It's people who don't have access to strong family networks. Only conservatives so. ever use the word mating, I find. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we will move on. And we'll move on to not an unrelated topic, which is your topic, Alice. There is this suggestion that parents who abuse their children emotionally should be subject to the criminal law. And is this in any way enforceable? Well, there's been a huge outcry already about this new so-called Cinderella law, and it's everyone's furious that the idea that actually we're going to start policing parents and that if you don't get a pony when you're a child, that you know, maybe... You know, actually, you've been disadvantaged in some way, or if you're I had a middle no, child, had no idea I was so disadvantaged. No, <laughs> well, exactly. You know, middle children. You know, if you get less parent presence, it's all about fairness. And then, and people have extrapolated the idea to think that you know, the stepchildren might not be treated as well as the children. That you know, your life could really be. Not that bad, but sort of, you know, you could whinge a bit and then you can but take how, your parents how, how to court. How can you measure any of this? Well, what actually, legally. this isn't actually going to happen. I mean, what, what it is for is it's, it's for the police and the social workers in very, very difficult cases. So they said the maximum time they would be really using this is in two or three hundred cases where they have a situation where they know there might be some physical abuse, but they can see the emotional abuse going on. And it is extremely bad. And it's a sort of... Describe that emotional abuse going on. Well, they're saying it's when a child is completely neglected, when, you know, they've been left in a cot all the time, when they haven't been potty trained and they're five, when they've never been spoken to, when they're living in total chaos, when no one cares about their welfare at all. And that's when you can get psychological problems and when they won't fit in and when the parents are more likely to start physically abusing them, they think, and then the police would like to be able to step in. So this is not a sort of middle-class 
and of, oh, we're not treating our children kindly enough. This is a very serious need and tool that the barristers and the police and the social workers all want, but only to use in very extreme cases. Does, it, does this operate in other countries? Every other country apart from England and Wales and the West has some sort of inclusion of emotional well-being for children. Do you buy this, David, as something that we should be doing as a society? I completely buy it, but actually I'm something of an extremist on this because I would also actually outlaw physical punishment of children by parents. Um, well, that's a whole other debate. Yeah. Well, actually, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not an unrelated debate because why is it that England and Wales are mm. practically the last countries where we install this? Why is it that we are still a country that have those great big arguments about when women try to breastfeed in public places and so on? Um, there is still, I'm afraid, a kind of residual dislike of children inside English culture, particularly English culture. I can't speak for the Scots. You go, can, uh, and so on, which is, which is problematic. I, I <laughs> I honestly do think, and I've discussed this, in 40 years' time, people will say, do you mean they really used to allow people to assault their children? And that was legal. And I think the same is true of this. Of course, uh, one of the things that adults have over children is immense and incredible power. Mm. And you can use that power to assault that, a child mentally as you can physically. Now, of course, the business of proving it is very much more difficult, and the state has to be very worried about how it intervenes and so on, but that it can happen, and but that the child may need some protection from it, I don't think there can be really much serious doubt. Well, the, um, there's a nursery rhyme we all sang when we were younger, Hugo, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's probably the most inaccurate nursery rhyme <laughs> ever sung because, of course, mental cruelty is huge. And so I have a lot of sympathy with um, where I think Alice and David are both coming from, that this really matters. I'm just unpersuaded how the courts will be able to evaluate when this is taking place. Well, the thing is, the courts already have to evaluate when this is taking place. And the great thing about this is, I mean, this is, this is clarity. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I always think the, um, the, the greatest violence that the state can commit upon a person is, mm. to, is to interfere in their relationship with their children. Uh, whether that's um, on a on a smaller level or taking children away, I mean, there's really there's really no no greater you know sort of no greater violence a state can commit upon you, and because of that, anything that 
that clarifies the role of the state, that leaves these things less to the whim of an exhausted social worker who's run off, who's run off their feet, of a, of a, you know, a sort of police service who want their statistics to move one way or the other. Anything that either forces their hands or clarifies exactly what they have to do hmm. um, is 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 a is a good thing in 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 my book you know neglect exists abuse exists it's it's not hard to love a child and look after a child the state does need the powers to um to be able to to get in the way when that's not happening but it's got to be regimented so I'm I'm all for this as well because it, it does actually Alice Thompson exist as I think a civil offence at the moment doesn't it this, well, is, yeah, so this consultation I think is about upgrading it mm. to a criminal offence so that the so courts have full that's powers that's why I think it's very unfair when all the the people who are now sort of starting a campaign against it say, oh, but it's going to be used as this sort of middle-class whingers charter. Because actually in civil courts, when you look through it, it hasn't happened. You don't get children going to court saying, I wasn't as fairly treated by my step-parents. So it's very unlikely it's going to happen in the criminal courts as well. And it's sort of scaremongering, really. And actually, you know, I was thinking, Rachel Sylvester and I have done interviews for 20 years, and almost all the interviews we've done, either someone, and they're all people who've been very successful, either a parent has died or one of their siblings has been treated better than them, or they've had step-parents, or they've all had something in their childhood that has gone wrong almost, because actually you need to have some adversity to actually get going quite often. And you know, some of the people who have done best are the people who have had quite difficult childhoods. Well, I wonder whether Nigel Farage had a difficult childhood. Yes. <laughs> because that is. He did have is, a very difficult childhood. He did have yes. a very. Uh, uh, maybe you tell His us more about that. When he was three and he was an alcoholic. Very interesting. Well, well Nigel Farage was an alcoholic when he was three. I was thinking that. <laughs> I thought I can't make that joke when we've just been talking about mystery children. But. <laughs> um, moving on very uh, quickly, um, before the lawyers uh, descend on us, um, David, the third topic we've got uh, today is the question of Nigel Farage. And uh, in Monday's edition of the newspaper, you talked about um, Nigel Farage claiming that he was somehow the heir to Thatcher, mm. that Margaret Thatcher would approve of his politics. But, of course, the remarks that he's made about Vladimir Putin, she would have absolutely hated. No, it's remarks. really interesting, this, uh, because it's not as if Farage is alone. I mean, one of the things that I've been very much aware of since the Ukraine crisis blew up and writing about it and appearing on television about it is the really substantial number of people who are broadly in the UKIP camp, but not just in the UKIP camp, also to a certain extent on the right wing of the Conservative Party, uh, who take this view by and large. We'll take the view that actually Putin is entitled to the Crimea, that there's some, he's, all he's trying to do in a sense is trying to reserve to Russia or bring back to Russia its kind of It's been a big theme powers. of letters to the Times actually. Lots it, of our readers have it's been It's been a huge it. theme and actually given that it's so remarkably untrue about the Crimea and so on, it, what it shows you is people straining for a position and for a sympathy and the question is why? And I think it's very interesting that Putin, who's this kind of combination of um, authoritarianism and a reaction to Western liberalism and so on, as well as uh, somebody who wants to restore the boundaries of his old state, should appeal essentially to people who themselves actually are out of tune with modernity. And it comes to the position whereby you, th you begin to think, actually, the truth is that a lot of people who Farage speak for, they're not really patriots in the sense of loving their country. They don't love, their, they don't love this country as it is. They love this country for the imagination of as it was. And Putin seems in a sense to do the same for Russia uh, in many kind of way. He seems to turn the clock back in some kind of way, socially, liberally, and politically. And it's that, in a sense, that they, that, that, that they hang on to. Now, funnily enough, Thatcher 
Mrs. Thatcher was not like that. She was actually, in her own kind of way, a progressive, a shaker-upper of things. She was not really a harper back uh, until the very last days to the old ways of doing things. Mm. But to be fair to um, Nigel Farage... Why? (laughs) (laughs) To be devil's advocate, he, he was not actually saying he liked... Vladimir Putin or the kind of Russia that Vladimir Putin was creating was he said he was admiring the way he operated well that was his secondary thing I mean actually there was a kind of combination of the things that he said on the debate with Nick Clegg last week and then the thing that he suddenly said uh, that that is in an earlier interview done for GQ with Alastair Campbell and the two things meshed together no I don't like Putin but you've got to admire the man for you know what he's done and for his brilliance in maneuver and so on yeah exactly exactly we don't want it, Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, I, I think um, I think this is about. There's a. I think it's not. It's not just Nigel Farage. I think there's a great collapse of internationalism in British politics. I was going to say on the right, but it's not just on the right. Uh, we've um, we've completely lost. Uh, not quite, not quite lost confidence in our role in the world, but something like that. Lo- lost the idea that we ought to have a role in the world. That's become a sort of a slightly dirty view. I think basically post Iraq, um, and um, and so people are uncomfortable uh sort of uh, affecting to say they ought, that they know what ought to be happen, hap, to be happening in other countries uh, instinctively suspicious of anything that smacks of intervention be it military or economic mm. or anything and most of all just don't want to talk about it well, that, and i think what farage sums up is that just don't want to talk about it let's you know stick within the borders sort of an isolationist view basically um uh- Alice Thompson, I'm going to have one more go at defending um, Farage here and see whether I can uh, persuade you. Is that in The Times' man of the year last year was Vladimir Putin, and we made him man of the year because we said that he had outwitted the West over Syria and got what he wanted in Syria rather than what the Western powers wanted. Since then, of course, he's got exactly what he wanted in Crimea. Perhaps, as David Aronovich is suggesting, uh, Nigel Farage admires Vladimir Putin for more reasons than just being a skillful operator. But skillful operator, he certainly is. I think you can say he's a skillful operator, but I think Nigel Farage is becoming less skillful, actually. When you look at the, some of the comments he's made, I thought particularly today, the comment that actually he's taking votes off... Um, the BMP is um, a real problem, actually, because you think these are the last people you want, really. I mean, you don't want to have BMP voters. Although probably a lot of people who voted BMP weren't necessarily voting BMP for the racism. No, it's a protest. But, I mean, the problem is, is the more oxygen he gets, the more he will mm. come up with things that people will really find quite distasteful. And just having done, spent, you know, four weeks doing this report on UKIP, the more you delve into them, the nastier it becomes. Yeah. Give, give us an illustration or two of that, the nastiness that you and Rachel Sylvester uncovered in that series. Well, I think a lot of it, just going down to their conference, a lot of it is about immigration, but on a very nasty local level. And there was a lot of, um, a lot of real pettiness about it, actually, about who was going to get benefits and who wasn't, and about who should be included and who shouldn't. So they wanted votes from the you know, people from the Caribbean to come in, but then they didn't want people from Poland. They wanted... Mm. It, it really pandered to everyone's worst instincts, I thought. We, uh, we're speaking before um, Hugo Rifkin, the second of the debates between Nigel Farage and Nick Clegg, and so we don't know who's going to win the debate, but perhaps we do know that really the winner is... You, winners are UKIP and Lib Dems. The winners are the end of two-party politics. And the sense is that we are seeing a fracturing of that Labour 
a continuing fracturing of that Labour Conservative duopoly and Nigel Farage may have the better when he debates or Nick Clegg may have slightly the better but both are just getting the attention that they need in order to survive as polit- and prosperous political parties. Yeah, which is which is a good thing. I mean, you know, finally there's a point to having a deputy prime minister and indeed there's a point to having the Liberal Democrats. You know, I think it's it's I mean, I think um, it's been a really um smart move of, by Nick Clegg to do this both in a kind of sort of personal political way but also in terms of giving voice to this kind of argument. It almost I mean it ties into what we were talking about how you know the, the collapse of internationalism in, in Britain, mm. um, the idea that, that, that there are, you know, there is a substantial body of, of Europhile opinion um, in public life. It's just, it's never given an airing and it never, you know, it's, it's like, you know, people But is, say, that, is, is that view getting an airing that will perhaps boost um, the Lib Dems, but it, it is also giving a lot more attention to UKIP? Both yeah, both but, that, but, that, but that's fine. I mean, you know, you, you, you need to, you can't bury this debate. I think UKIP always always benefits when you bury this debate because it becomes a thing. It's like, it's like the you can't talk about immigration myth. Mm. You know, it's, um, we talk about nothing else. <laughs> we, talk, we, talk, we talk about nothing else. And, um, and it's very rare that you hear the, the positive case for Europe made. And Nick Clegg's a, you know, the great person to be making it. And you know, thank God he's finally got something you, to do. You, you're impressed with Nick Clegg in these debates, David Aronovich? I, I, think, I think Hugo is, I mean, it's really tedious for me to say something. He was absolutely bang on about this. Uh, you never, ever get the pro-European side of the argument. Yeah. It certainly haven't since the big crisis in the Eurozone, but you didn't actually uh, before, because politicians in the mainstream parties see the raw figures and they have to trend towards them. And that leaves out the 30%. It's like the immigration debate is quite often, actually. There are kind of 30 to 35% of us who are very liberal about immigration. But because the parties can't trend to look at that 35%, they have to look at the... Then that that argument almost never gets a look in at certain points. Uh, And so the great thing about uh, Nick Clegg was that he stood up there and said, you know, this Europe is not a bad thing for us at all. And you thought, at last somebody's saying it. Mm. Final word to you, Alice Thompson, today. Um, David Cameron has been a bit coy about whether admitting he's watching this debate or not. But I can imagine he is, and he must be cheering Nick Clegg on. He must be wanting Nick Clegg to improve the standing of Europe because David Cameron does not want to leave the EU. And he also, of course, wants Nigel Farage to get a bashing because he needs UKIP to decline if the Conservatives have any chance at the next election. I think he must be thinking, what am I going to do at the next election? You know, am I going to face having one of these debates of my own or a series of these debates of my own or can I duck out? Because I think he really wants to duck out and if he can find any excuse to duck out, he will. And did you, who do you, quick yes or no answer from each of you then in that case because uh, Alice has raised a good point. Will there be debates at the next election before the next election involving all of the party well, I, leaders? I, I, don't know, but I, I don't know, but I'm going to pa- argue as hard as I possibly can for I think it would be an absolute disgrace if they don't happen. Alice? I think they'll try and put them off. They will, and they will succeed? I think if they happen, it'll be before the election campaign starts, even. Yeah. Hugo? Yeah, I think they won't happen. I think they should happen, but I think they won't happen. I think, um, I think you're quite right. I think Cameron knows he has only... I mean, because he, he performed surprisingly badly in the last ones, and I think he knows that he has only to lose. Yeah. Um, he so thinks I, that Ed Miliband might do better this time. That's the problem. Last time. Yeah. Well, trouble is, Ed Miliband has such low expectations attached yeah. to him, we can only exceed them. But, you know, a head-to-head debate against Gordon Brown on television, I mean, that's not hard. <laughs> you know, uh, it was the point where he pointed to the audience and, and, and a, it was a woman had asked a question and he, said, and, he, and he replied by saying, woman, of which you are one. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, and you're like, this, I mean, this, this is never going to work. <laughs> well, Hugo, that's a lovely note to end on. Uh, thank you to you, to Alice, and to David Aronovich, who has been our guest today. Thanks to David Maguire, producer. And to all of you, we've now hit a quarter of a million listens to this podcast. So thank you very much. And all Times subscribers who are listening in, we've discussed a number of articles today. And if you want to read those articles that we've been discussing, please go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central where you can read them and you can also subscribe to this podcast via itunes so that you never miss an episode until next week goodbye i'm gabriel marconi the host of the game podcast from the times where we talk football every single monday we'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on itunes This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.